Hello and welcome again to another edition of Locked in Science. We are still locked in because we are predominantly in Victoria and looks like we'll be this way for another few weeks at the very least. However, we are here to bring you an hour of science. An hour? A half an hour. And half an hour. Yeah, we could go for an hour, but you know, it'll cut off halfway through. Time is slowing down these days. So an hour, you know, maybe a half an hour feels like an hour. Yeah. You know, lockdown time. It's it's very fluid, uh, the perception of time (laughs) at the moment uh, in many ways. Um, Where has the year gone, for example? Mm. Here we are in September. And as always, who are we? Well, I'm Stu. And on the show tonight, I'm going to talk about a little bit about why we can't get back on the beers as Dan Andrews has pointed out a number of times. But the science of beer is what I'm going to be talking about and specifically some stuff to do with how it's made and and the future of beer in Australia. Okay. Important Mm. stuff. Important stuff. I mean, um, well, you know, that was sort of one of my lights at the end of the tunnel, you know, getting back on the... (laughs) Getting back to the pub and having a schooner or a pint or, um, you know, whatever you might have. A midi um, or so a... This, a midi or a um, pot. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, if you want to crush that dream tonight, Stu, then I guess that's... No, look, I'm I'm opening up the, the vista of future beer. Let's... Ah, yeah. There's, there's okay, a lot of so research it... into beer. Yeah, right. Who would right. have thought? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, well, I cannot wait to hear it. Um, and tonight we have, and today, uh, and this week we have a special guest because it is actually National Threatened Species Day this week. And so, so who are you talking to, Claire? Um, well, I'm not talking to any of the actual threatened species. Oh. Um, that would make an interesting interview, but probably, um, you know, one that you probably wouldn't be able to understand because I cannot talk to animals or plants. Um, but we will be talking to Dr. David Baker-Gab, who is an ornithologist and uh, pretty much the world expert on the Plains Wanderer. And the Plains Wanderer isn't, um, you know, some hippie from Byron Bay. <laughs> <laughs> We love Byron Bay, shout out. Um, The Plains Wanderer is um, an incredible bird from the plains, the grasslands of Victoria and New South Wales um, that is close to extinction. So um, David's going to talk us through um, what this incredible bird, um, uh, what it is, what it and what it stands for, where you find them and what the threats to extinction are on this National Threatened Species Day. And obviously finding out why it can't wander far enough from the threats that it's facing. It is, yeah, exactly. It is quite a poetic name, though, the Plains Wanderer. Like, oh, you can't get a more poetic name for a bird. I mean, better than a galah, you know. <laughs> Cockatoo, yeah. <laughs> grass parrot, nah. No good, no good. Stay tuned for the rest of those stories later in the show. You probably heard Victoria had some bad news over the weekend. We are not quite ready to open up the community and... Get on the beers, as Dan Andrews has said before. Um, so Dan I thought, Andrews should probably be the first person down at the pub, right? 
Oh, look, when the... Absolutely, absolutely. He, he should lead the way. Uh, but look, I thought I'd do the next best thing, and I have jumped into the virtual vat of beer science. <laughs> and I've found some beery interesting news. Oh, Stu, how many can you fit in, the, oh, in just, your intro? Just you wait. Uh, <laughs> tide everyone over until we can all get out and enjoy a cold one in the spring sunshine safely. First of all, do you know what beer is made of? Okay. I think I know this. Let um okay, so water. Yep. Um you've got hops for flavoring. Yep. You might have like yeast or no oh yeah, yeast. Yeah, definitely yeast. Yep, and um and then you've got something that the yeast needs to eat, so like a barley or a wheat or something like that. That's pretty much it. You can make beer out of all sorts of things. There's there's wheat beers around. They're relatively common. There's rice beers around for the uh-huh. for the gluten free among us. Uh, but the most commonly used grain for beer making is, as you mentioned, barley. Um, and what they basically do is they ferment the barley. They add the hops to give it some extra flavour. Um, hops, if you don't know, are a flowering, climbing plant, and they use the aromatic flowers of the hops to give flavour to the beer. And there's about 80 commercial varieties of hops. Um, and there are new varieties of hops being developed all the time. People are breeding new ones all the time. Um, competition between craft brewers for new, exciting beer flavours is, mm. is fierce. Um, <laughs> and and that- hops is, is a plant that's related to another um, interesting plant. Is that... Is, I? Is that correct? Yeah, so hops is um, humulus lupus. It's in the Cannabinaceae family, and the only mm. other member of the Cannabinaceae family is the genus Cannabis. So very interesting, very interesting relationship there. Um, now, the base of the beer itself is barley, and a lot of research has gone into barley, and particularly in the last couple of years, um, following some Australian well, international genetic research published in 2017, but uh, a good deal of it was undertaken in Australia at the University of Adelaide and uh, Murdoch University in WA. Um, so Australia grows a lot of barley, so there's a, there's a fair bit of money uh, behind it uh, because we sell about a billion dollars worth every year. And much, wow. Yeah, that's it's quite a lot of money for, yeah. for a lesser-known crop we don't Mm. we don't eat a lot of barley but we drink a lot of barley um so about uh a third of the global brewing barley supply comes from australia which is really yeah so we're, we're right up there in the in the barley supply um so this international research group had scientists from germany australia china and other places teamed up to unravel the genetic code of barley and help improve the crop potential of barley. Um, they they started off. They had a uh, the genome of rice because rice was an early plant crop plant that people cracked the code of. Then they realised, yeah, the rice genome was not very useful because the barley one's completely different and much more complicated um. than the rice genome apparently. Um, but understanding the genetic code of barley, the scientists are hoping to target specific genes that will help breeders make barley easier to grow and look for specific characteristics that will help with the brewing process, for example. 
Um, so obviously in Australia, drought is a big problem and that's one of the sort of holy grails of plant breeding in Australia is to get more drought tolerant plants um, by selective breeding and, and potentially genetic modification and things like that. Um, but also when they, when they make beer out of barley, they mash up the barley which allows the yeast to get into the starch inside the grains of barley, which is the part that actually gets fermented. That starch turns into sugar, the sugar turns into alcohol. That's how you get beer out of it. But the outside of the grain is mostly cellulose. Mm. So the yeast doesn't break down the cellulose. It's just left there as a, as a byproduct, and it's a waste product the brewer has to deal with. And it also means... <clears throat> also means... Lots of cleaning out of filters to get rid of all of this leftover right. cellulose. So one of the things that they're trying to look at is whether their genetic work could uh, find a way or find varieties of barley that have genes that make more soluble cellulose or otherwise allow for it to break down during the brewing, which saves them a lot of work. Is there any? Are there any breweries that are utilising that waste product in sort of you know, cool and innovative ways, like feeding it to animals or, I think, you know, I mean. I think people do use it for animal feed and that sort of thing because there's mm. still a lot of, you know, there's still a lot of, pro, you know, food value left in that. Sure, yeah. Um, you could possibly even make some sort of human food product out of it, like, mm. oh, I don't know, Vegemite. <laughs> Beer-flavoured Vegemite. Yeah, mm. well, that's the, the Vegemite that's came just... from the bottom of a beer vat at some point. <laughs> Um, oh, there you go. Now, one of the... Uh, so, yeah, they're basically looking at ways that they could look at the genes of the barley and figure out is there ways we can make it better for the processing, for the growing, um, all of those sorts of things. Now, one of the um, uh, more research has followed on from this. So research at the University of Adelaide has recently been looking into other characteristics of barley which could make Australian barley more popular with overseas breweries. Now, historically, the barley is understood to be in the beer to provide the sugars that ferment into alcohol, but the flavour is generally relied on the hops. Um, except there are big differences in flavour based on where the barley comes from. Right, okay. So even if you've got the same hops... Um, used in a, in a beer, if the barley is different, the, the beer is going to taste different. different. Yeah, and brewers in China preferentially buy Canadian barley rather than Australian barley because... What's wrong with Australian barley? Well, Does it just taste just a, it's got just a, a preference? It's got a stronger flavour. It, oh. it tastes more like barley. Um, so the malting process which precedes the brewing, um, the Australian barley has a much stronger flavor profile after going through that process and in china they make specifically those clean fresh style beers that don't have that real malty flavor so they ah, oh, like your singtao yeah and they avoid buying australian barley if they can but because we produce so much they're kind of forced into buying it at some point <laughs> Um, now, in blind taste tests that they conducted at the University of Adelaide, expert tasters correctly identified wort, which is the pre-fermented uh, oh, product yeah, right. that goes into making yeah. beer. So they, they tasted this, this wort uh, from Australian, Canadian and Chinese grown barley and correctly identified the origin of each one. 
um, just on their flavour. They had no other way of telling mm. what, what it was. So it was a blind taste test. So the research that they've done may actually lead to specific barley varieties and possibly even different growing methods to give different flavour profiles to the barley for different beers. So, you know, it's something that craft brewers are very interested in because they're always looking for, you know, novel new flavours for for their products. That's a very competitive market. I remember many years ago where there was only a couple of beers that you could possibly buy. <laughs> and now it's a whole wall of the, uh, of the bottle shop. Um, so the hope is to also uh, develop specific strains and identify specific strains that better suit beer making styles for larger brewers in other countries to increase the value of exports in barley in future so that they don't end up with Australian barley being the second choice of product for those brewers. Um, and look, I, I did start looking into this as I was a bit, you know, it's spring, we should be able to be out there in the beer garden having a beer. But look, as research goes, I hop, they are successful in tapping into some answers and they get some decent publications out of future drafts of their papers. We'd all like to see a lager demand for Australian products. You got that out of your system now? <sighs> cool story, Brew. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. has a bad track record for animal extinctions. In 2018, we were the world's fourth worst country for the number of animals that have become extinct on our watch. Now, to bring awareness to animals and plants that are on the brink of extinction this week, it is National Threatened Species Day. And although there are many threatened species on this list, regrettably, today we are shining the light on one in particular the rarely sighted but extremely special bird, the Plains Wanderer. And to help us learn more about this bird is leading world expert ornithologist, Dr. David Baker-Gab. David, welcome to Lost in Science. Good evening. Now, David, let's start with the basics. What is a Plains Wanderer? A Plains Wanderer is a small ground-dwelling bird if you held up the palm of your hand and it was standing on tippy toes, then it would be about from your wrist to the tip of your fingers or the size of a quail, if that okay. makes any is on the money. And they're quite unusual to look at. They're a bit lanky when, and they can move quite quickly through the grass. Unusually, females are larger and more colourful than the males. Right. Um, and that ties in with their breeding system. 
So the female defends the territory of about 400 metres wide or nine hectares or so. And she has this low mm, 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 call, a bit like a cow's call, I suppose. I suppose. And, and so she attracts the boys and she teams up with a male and then she lays a clutch of eggs and they go through all these really interesting displays and he sits on them and she makes sure he does. And then once she's got him well bedded down there, she teams up with another boy. Um, and he, the males do all the chick rearing. It's a bit like the old man emu where the males do the chick rearing. And there's a link to our really ancient avifauna. So there's been fossil plains wanderer-like birds found in Australia that have been over 30 million years old. Wow. So when we look at the links, then we see that the closest relative to a plains wanderer, which is still very, very distant, is in South America, a seed snipe in South America. So that's a link back to the old Gondwana supercontinent days. So it is part of a very special but ever diminishing club of Australian uh, birds. It sounds like these are incredibly unique birds in the ecosystem, but also the way that they behave. Where do you find these incredible birds? Well, the key areas for them nowadays are the northern plains of central Victoria, so up around Echuca, but on the plains there, and the New South Wales Riverina Plains, so north of Deniliquin, between Hay and Deniliquin. So those are the two strongholds. There used to be lots of them on the plains west of Melbourne. They're hardly there at all now. They used to be on the plains west of Adelaide, not there at all now. So there's lots of places where they used to be, but we've lost about 99% of the grasslands, native grasslands, which is their hab key habitat, their only habitat, south of the divide and about 95% north of the divide in Victoria. Then there's a, a key lead into why they are so endangered. In fact, they're mm. critically endangered. Right, they're critically endangered. There must be um, very specific threats to them then. Yes, past threats, of course, have been basically the clearing of that habitat, which means that the grasslands of, say, Victoria's Western Volcanic Plains and the grasslands of Victoria's Northern Plains, which are different types of grasslands, are both classified as critically endangered, just as the plains wanderer is critically endangered. In fact, the level of endangerment of the plains wanderers and its uh, uniqueness is such that the in the 2018, it was assessed to be the number one species in the world, that's of 10,000 plus species of bird, in terms of its risk of extinction and its genetic uniqueness. And why it's genetically unique is that it's in a family all of its own. So if you think of other critically endangered birds, like the orange-bellied parrot, has four other neofema parrots which are in the same genus as it. I have to interrupt you here. Did you say neofema? Yes. What does that mean? Well, that's the genus name. Right. Okay. Of the species. So every, every, every species has a genus and a species. Um, so the blackbird is Turtus merula. So the genus Turtus with the, you know, the species name merula. So, um, and then, so the swift parrot, 
which is also critically endangered, is in a genus all of its own. So it has no other species that are related mm. to it. Mm -hmm. And then the plains wanderer is in a family all of its own. Right. So it has no nothing that's even remotely related to it. So the OBP is like a twig on the bird's tree of evolution. The swift parrot's like a branch, and the plains wanderer is like a limb. So right. if you lose a limb off the tree, it's really significant. It also sounds a bit lonely for the plains wanderer. Yeah, I, I guess it is. I mean, it's a, it's the thylacine was in exactly the same category in a family all of its line, of its own. So when we lost the thylacine, the world lost something very very significant, and the plains wanderers in the same class. And so why why do you think that um, people don't know about the plains wanderer though? Well, I think it's mainly because it's small and cryptic. So, you know, they're pretty hard to find out in the grasslands. And indeed, when I started working on them over three decades ago, most of the bird twitching fraternity who are desperate to see, you know, as many bird species they can, could only dream of seeing a plains wanderer. They just didn't know how to find them. It's just like how we found the night parrots more recently. Yeah. People would dream of, you know, certain people would dream of seeing a night parrot. And has that changed now? Do we know more about their biology and their behaviour so we have a better chance of seeing them? What's, what's been your experience so far in, your, in all your time um, twitching oh, yes, it's, and researching it's, them? It has changed a lot. You know, 30 years ago, there was virtually nothing known about them. Now we know what sort of grasslands they live in, what structure of grasslands they require, and it's reasonably specific as to what they require. And, um, you know, we know what they eat and what the threats, most of the threats to them are. Um, dealing with those threats is obviously, you know, something that is still, we're still working on, but we, we are making considerable progress. And interestingly, some new technologies have helped quite considerably towards that progress in very recent times. So we now, we used to do just spotlighting at night for them, but now we've used thermal cameras. Right. And they're about three times as good at finding birds and many other things. You just see the heat signature and then you can check it out. But they just have much bigger range than a spotlight does. And the other thing that I've been using um, quite recently is song meters. So these mm -hmm. are a brick-sized recording device with um, two little microphones on them. And they are programmed to come on sunrise and sunset. And they record that oom, oom, oom call, which the ladies are giving. And so we found out a whole lot of, whole lot of new paddocks uh, or new grasslands on private land where these birds are. and um, you know, we're finding out because they call a lot when they're breeding and not much when they're not, then you get, you know, lots of insights into uh, when the breeding seasons are. So these girls will go more than once a year. Like many things only breed once a year, but um, if the conditions are right, then they'll breed in spring as usual. But then if they get a big dump of rain, they'll breed again in summer and maybe again in autumn as well. So they have plenty of potential to recover quite rapidly if the grasslands are well managed and many grasslands up to more recent times say go back three or four years were not well managed um, a lot of them were overgrazed in hot dry summers and then when it rained it got too dense 
Now, the reason they got too dense is that they have these weedy introduced grasses in them. Mm. And so if you get a big dump of autumn rain, right. they grow very densely. Yeah. So interestingly, this is a national park, for example, that has to have some grazing. So you put some sheep in, yeah. when those weedy grasses are nice and fresh and green, the sheep will eat those because mm. it's like ice cream compared to all that straw stuff around, <laughs> the native stuff. And as soon as they've done the job, you get them out. And right. they don't go back in there for the rest of the year. Okay. So that's the sort. That's how you manage the grassland, or one of the main reasons, main ways of managing it. And why is it that plains wanderers need that specific sort of open grassland? Do we understand the relationship there? Yeah. So initially, or go if you go back prior to the introduction of these weedy grasses, along with the Europeans who spread them around. There was tussocky grasslands, native grasslands with spaces between them. Now, plains wanderers like to weave their way between those grasslands as they pick seeds and insects off the ground. And the other thing is when they see, these are fairly low growing grasslands. So they're not going to be more than about 10 centimetres high. So plains wanderers standing on tippy toes can easily see over the top of them. Mm. And so they see a ground predator. Right, and they okay. just run away and <laughs> through the grasses and they can really run. Um, and so when it's all choked up dense, they can't run away so easily and they can't, and then they have to fly. And mm -hmm. flames wanderers are not very good flyers. And there's plenty of birds of prey around over those plains. And if they see a plains wanderer taking off, you know, like a lumbering old bum bomber fighter, you know, then <laughs> they're lunch. Um, you know, the other birds, um, things like larks will ring up in a circle and now climb a, a bird of bird of prey or um, stubble quail are very fast flyers and they just explode out and then dive into dense grass. So plains wanderers are not able to do that. And so, yeah, that's why they tend to run away from predators or use their intent and, you know, incredible camouflage to just hide. And um, I have one more question about um, the Plains Wanderer. Does it, is it a nocturnal bird? I heard you saying you, you do spotlighting. Is, is that because it comes out at night or is that for a different reason? People thought they were nocturnal, um, but in fact, they're not. And the birds in captivity, we can talk about that, they certainly um, show that they're very active during the day. But the thing is that if, when you're driving it around with a spotlight at night, they haven't evolved to um, avoid a 100-watt quartz halogen bulb um, <laughs> shining a light on them. So, you, you know, they stand up with, and they're a little bit dazzled and so you can easily, easily see them. As I'm sure we all would be, David, when we have a bright light shone in our eyes. <laughs> These things, you're dead right. Uh, so it is National Threatened Species Day, um, and I'm curious to sort of hear about what the current programs are to conserve the plains wanderer. One of the main programs to ensure that the species doesn't go extinct is captive breeding. So there's captive um, facilities at the Werribee Open Range Zoo in Victoria, at Taronga's Dubbo Zoo, and at Monato Zoo in South Australia. So they all cooperate with each other. And for example, uh, the Werribee team recently sent 10 birds 
to Monato to get them started on the breeding program. Oh, great. Because has been pretty successful at breeding. breeding Fantastic. Well, they were hoping to do trial releases with radio trackers on them and so forth now, but, you know, coronavirus has got in the way of that, so mm. that's been put off till probably March next year. Um, and so, yeah, so we need to run these trials to make sure that um, with any... Uh, issues that arise are quickly addressed because we're dealing with critically endangered birds here. And where they're being released into, um, well, some will be government reserves and some of them trust for nature of grassland reserves and others um, private land, probably which have covenants on them. So there's been a substantial increase in the number of covenants um, which private landholders, farmers, have been happy to have on placed over their grasslands. They get a financial recompense for doing that. And so they need to manage those grasslands such that they always retain good cover on them, but not too dense, which is quite a sophisticated thing to do, but farmers have been doing that sort of thing all their lives. So they're obviously the best people to do it. So that's where we're making some considerable progress with that particular program. Always short of money, of course, because you've got to pay the farmers to put these really top grasslands under a covenant. And these covenants are in perpetuity. So that even if the place is sold, they're there for the life of, well, they're there forever. And they've got a management plan. Okay. So, oh, yeah. And, and for our listeners out there who might um, hear about the Plains Wander and wonder, I guess, you know, where they can find out more information or where they can help. Uh, where would you direct people, David? Um, have a look at the Trust for Nature's website. Have a look at the Zoos Victoria's website. Um, if you've got any kids that are interested in threatened species, both of those organisations have um, you know, small people friendly uh, information, particularly uh, Zoos Victoria. That's, you know, they specialise in that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so. That's where I'd go, probably. How, how are we going to keep the Plains Wanderer safe from the threats for as long as possible into the future? Well, establishing the reserves and the covenants are really important because even today, we're still losing grasslands to cultivation. On the Northern Plains and this autumn, um, five grassland paddocks were cultivated for the first time in probably 70 or 80 years. Um, there's not any laws in place that will prevent that happening at the moment. Um, and we've seen things happening with the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act that doesn't give you much um, confidence that that will not persist into the future. So people can go and contact their local member to let them know that um, these are the issues that are important to them as well. Certainly, and important to all threatened species. So, yeah, more power to the, to the pen is it's always a good thing. And then there's, you know, the organisations that um, are doing the work that you can, you can support. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us this week for National Threatened Species Day. And I truly hope that the Plains Wanderer will continue wandering for a very long time to come.
that's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time if you want to get in touch with us you can email us you can find us on twitter and facebook we are broadcast across australia on the community radio network with the financial assistance of the community broadcasting foundation and if you would like to tune in next week chris Stu, and claire will get locked in science listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.